Hey everyone, and welcome to Behind the Bee Box. I'm your host, Sherry, and I'll be interviewing passionate, courageous people who love what they're doing and are on top of their game. I want to share their journeys, lessons, and tips with you. We also discuss different facets of workplace culture and leadership. Plus, we'll dive a little deeper into thought-provoking topics we think you'll love. I truly hope it makes a positive difference to your life, workplace, or business. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone. So I first came across Dr. Tim Sharp on YouTube. He was being interviewed by two podcasters who were discussing mental health and well-being with him. He is a psychologist. He has three degrees in psychology uh, and he's well-renowned in the space of positive psychology, which I'm really passionate about. I was really fascinated by the discussion and decided to connect with Dr. Tim Sharp on LinkedIn. And I think my passion for health and well-being must have really shone through because he sent me two of his books since we connected. I really love the way he had structured his thoughts and research around well-being and what it means to live a more fulfilling life. And so here we are now about to jump into a podcast that we recorded together. I hope you learn as much from him as I did. Enjoy and let me know your thoughts. So Today, you're, you are the Chief Happiness Officer at the Happiness Institute. I'd be keen for you to share what that's all about and what your mission is with this company because you've been running it for about 15 or 16 years. Is that right? Um, yes, I think that's about right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so would you mind sharing a little bit about the company and uh, what your goals are with it, what your mission is with it? Well, in simple terms, um, the happen- I set up the Happiness Institute. Um, so, so I should say before that, my background was in clinical psychology. So I had a um, quite a successful career in a big um, clinical psychology practice. But I set up the Happiness Institute um, when I first discovered the very early days of positive psychology. Uh, so as you said, 15, 16 years ago, or it was actually a couple of years before that, um, positive psychology was just starting to I guess sprout a few a few signs here and there, um, and it wasn't really that known, especially here in Australia. So one of the main reasons I set up the Happiness Institute was really to promote those principles. It was like wanted to sort of wave a flag and say, "Look at this," because because I got so excited about it. I thought it was such a great thing when I heard about positive psychology, and I wanted a way to um, uh, again, I guess, to spread the word to as many people as possible. And I and it wouldn't have been appropriate to do that through my clinical psychology practice. So I wanted to start something new with a um, more appropriate brand, I suppose, um, and uh, yeah, take the knowledge and the wisdom from the science that was in those days just starting, but has now become there's a massive body of literature now. Um, I wanted to take it to uh, to organisations, to schools, to parents, to individuals, and and help them get excited about and apply what what I was learning at the time. Yeah, and for someone who doesn't know what positive psychology. Is or what the differences are between what you were doing as a clinical psychologist versus positive psychologist, how would you describe it to them? Yeah, so I probably should start by saying that I don't think that they're mutually exclusive. Um, and I don't think most people do. Um, but for ease of discussion, um, I guess it's easier to sort of say what one is and what one isn't. So clinical psychology is probably what most people think of when they think of therapy, um, like the traditional approach to psychotherapy or psychological therapy, where we we focus on, or the focus is on um, understanding and assessing psychological disorders 
like uh, like depression and anxiety. Uh, they're the main ones, I guess, but also eating disorders and psychoses and a whole range of other things. Uh, and then treating them. Um, so it's about treating distress and dysfunction, which is obviously very, very important. Um, but positive psychology, which again, I want to emphasize isn't mutually exclusive, but um, positive psychology, you know, around that 15, 20 years ago, some, some of the leading psychologists at the time said, look, you know, for so long we've, we meaning us psychologists, um, for so long we focused on what's wrong with people. What if we were to focus on what's right with people? And so the shift came from instead of just focusing on deficits and faults and weaknesses and trying to fix them, it was about asking uh, what's good in you, what are your strengths uh, and how can we make the most of it? And rather than just saying, how can we um, fix or treat or reduce your depression? How can we really boost and promote happiness? Now, again, I think they go well hand in hand, but it was a significant shift from a purely, almost purely deficit and distress focus to one that's more about thriving and flourishing. So um, it's about how can we be how can we be the best that we can possibly be uh, in our lives, not just as individuals, but as um, family or couples and families and communities, etc. Yeah. And what made you shift from doing more of the clinical psychology work, or if you're if you're still doing that, that's great. But what made you focus on <coughs> psychology? Um, I know you said you were excited and you're passionate about it, but what made you think that this was going to be successful? in reality so taking it from theory to actually practice practicing it in the workplace or with families and with people well i don't think in the very early days i don't think i thought so much about whether it was going to be successful or not it was really it really just got me excited and i for me anyway although i i might not have realized it at the time but for me that's actually why i got into psychology i i think um, I wanted to help people be happy. I wanted to help people be successful and to perform at their best. Um, and psychology, historically, psychology has kind of done that in a way. But as I said, there has been, there, you know, there was historically a bit of an unfortunate shift, I suppose, from um, from those ideal goals to really just saying, well, rather than helping you be your best, how can we stop you be your worst? And they're not the same thing. Um, so, I mean, I loved clinical psychology and it was a very satisfying career. And I, I did it up until, you know, I was a therapist and clinician up until fairly recently. But, but when this, uh, at the time, new movement came along, it was really, it was almost like, like, this is what I wanted to do. Um, this, where, where's this been on my life sort of thing? So it was more just about me getting excited and wanting to spread that excitement. Um, and it turned out that, I mean, you know, as the research grew, um, it turned out, thankfully, that, you know, that it is fantastically useful and effective and, um, and it's turned out that it's been very popular and that other people have shared my enthusiasm as well. Yeah, I love that. I, I can see <coughs> the excitement in your face and the energy come out when you speak about it as well. You can tell that you're just genuinely really passionate about it. And um, I'd be really, really keen to understand as well. You obviously have this interest in human behaviour, how we can help people be happier and take more control of their lives. Um how do you think you got to this point where you're running a business that is based on what you're really passionate about? So the question is around what's made you who you are? Uh, look, it's a good question. I, I think I, um, you know, in hindsight, I think I was always interested in people. Um, I don't quite know what, well, I think, I think my father was, even though he, he didn't study psychology, but he was always a people person and 
his the various jobs and businesses that he had over the years were you know, his strengths in a sense were were around people although but in his day or his generation they didn't really have the language that we have now so um you know i think he he might have studied psychology or teaching he would have been very good at something like that yeah. um so i was always um and, and i think my personality is um i'm actually relatively introverted so i i tend to sort of sit back and watch um and i'd always uh, i'd always been interested in yeah just why people do things and uh, i love sport and i was sort of interested in why you know why are some athletes better than others and so i didn't at the time i mean when i left school and started university i didn't i don't think i really understood why i just kind of knew that's something i was interested in and i, I probably at the time i, I it was almost like I wasn't interested in anything else. So I studied psychology almost through process of elimination, and it was kind of lucky in a way that it that it turned out well. Um, I didn't plan on setting up my own business or practice. I, that that came a lot later. I, in fact, initially, um, even when I started to study psychology, I still didn't know uh, how I would apply it or where it would end up. When I um, I'd never actually met a psychologist when I first started studying, so I didn't really know what they did or. Um, it just, again, it just sounded interesting. And then you know, I was very lucky along the way to, to find a few great lecturers and tutors who, who kind of mentored me and guided me in the right direction. And, and that's what led me to clinical psychology, um, which I loved, and then into um, academic psychology. And that, in the very early days, that was my goal, to become a clinical academic, um, which I did do and which I loved. Um, and so I did do that. That was sort of the first half of my career, I suppose, where I was, um, I was working as a therapist and a clinician, but also doing some research and teaching. And that was I really, at that stage, I'd found my ideal job. It was fantastic, and I was with great people. But for a variety of reasons, I got to a point um, where I needed a change, I suppose, as much as anything. And that's when I um, I stepped out of what was an ideal role in lots of ways, a perfect role, job in lots of ways, into private practice, which I'd never thought of before. <coughs> Sorry. And that's when I, um, uh, I guess I discovered a bit of an entrepreneurial gene that I didn't realise I had. And that's when... An, uh, I built up the private practice into quite a big business. It was, um, uh, well, I think it was the biggest private practice, psychology practice in Australia and uh, had about 50 staff. And, um, and that, that set up a whole new um, part of my career, I suppose. It was a, it was, I had to learn a lot of new things that I that didn't teach you about running a business at, at, uh, when, you, when you're studying psychology. Um, but it also, I guess, unfortunately, it also sort of took me away from what I loved in a way. And it was, even though I loved it and it was fantastic and it was successful, um, it did get to a point after quite a few years where I, well, actually my wife picked it up when I, you know, she, I came home one day and she said, you, you're not actually doing what you love anymore. Because I was spending all of my time, uh, I, I had to stop being a therapist then because I was so busy running this business and I was spending all of my time talking, you know, managing staff and recruiting staff and talking to lawyers and accountants and signing leases. And um, again, it was really exciting and I don't regret it in lots of ways, mm -hmm. but I did get to this point where I thought, hold on, I'm, I'm not actually doing what I loved. And that's when I, and I, so that's when I sort of reassessed and started to scale back the psychology practice. And around the same time, um, that's when positive, coincidentally, that's when the, those early stages of positive psychology were starting. So at around the same time, I decided to sort of scale back the psychology practice so I could focus more on what I love to do. I also discovered positive psychology and started to build up the happiness institute and kind of made the same mistake again but in a different way <laughs> around the focusing on the business side all of that kind of taking over when you're yeah. well I, I guess one of the i mean i've always sort of been torn because again i've never really aimed to be or wanted to be a businessman um but i have always had this goal and passion about getting 
getting the word out to as many people as possible. I guess that's always been something I've been fascinated with. I, I love being a therapist and I loved and a coach. Um, and I still love that and do it in a different way. Um, and you know, there's something very uh, incredibly intimate and incredibly rewarding about sitting one-on-one -on -one with someone and, and, and directly working with them and seeing, you know, intimately seeing them change their lives. But I also, but there was also kind of a, um, I don't know if frustration is quite the word, but I, but I guess a, um, a passionate about knowing that it could help so many more people. And that there was, you know, even if I sat down every single day and saw, you know, seven or eight clients five days a week, there's a, there's a limit to how many people I could see. Um, so again, there was always, I guess I've always had this tension about um, not necessarily wanting to be a businessman, but wanting to get the word out as, to as many people as possible. And that, um, you know, so that's why I built the practice. That's why I built the happiness industry. But it's also why I've sort of worked hard to get into other areas like the media and writing and I guess more recently podcasting. And because um, for me, again, that's a way of, uh, you know, you can just reach so many more people than I ever could sitting in a, in a chair in my, you know, in my consulting room. Yeah, definitely. Um, I tend to agree with what you're saying about the business aspect, because I think it has <coughs> so many different industries. So you start off in a niche that can be quite creative. So say it's even if it's marketing or something like that, but as you kind of, you know, climb up the ranks, your, your role isn't what it used to be. It's not, it's no longer the creation of something or that intimate one-to-one, -one, it becomes about, you know, more politics, bureaucracy, the numbers, the bottom line. Um, and so, yeah, I have seen quite a shift in what people love and then when they, where they end up when they start building out their career. So it's interesting to see that that's actually happened in your field as well. Um, what, I'm, what I was hearing you talk about was spreading the word and you mentioned a podcast and writing and things like that. Would you mind sharing some of the things that you have done so far? Yeah, well, um, well I guess the, so I've, I've written, um, I think I've had eight books published um, and the first one was really just a, uh, it was something I'd always wanted to do. I'd, I'd always loved writing it, but never, um, I guess I'd never really thought about it as a career. You know, sometimes people have said, if you, if you weren't doing what you're doing now as a psychologist, what would you be doing? And I can't really think of anything else because I do, I, I've loved my career and I love what I do. But if there was, let's say journalism or writing is possibly about the only other, or one of the few only other areas that I can imagine myself um, in. And, and so I've always loved to write, partly just because I like the process, um, but also, as I said, about, you know, getting the word out to as many people as possible. And I thought if, you know, if, if a thousand or five thousand or ten thousand people read this book, well, again, that's a lot more than I can see in a therapy practice. And, and I know it's not exactly the same thing, obviously, um, but, but, you know, it's great. And there's a lot of people who, for different reasons, won't ever come to therapy or can't afford therapy, but they can afford a, you know, a $25 book or a $20 book or whatever it is. So, so I, um, yes, I've been lucky enough to, so I've written quite a few books, um, although that's a, um, I hesitate to say a dying industry. It's not a dying industry at all, actually. It's going quite well in some areas, but but it is a it's a very challenging industry from a business perspective. Um, and I guess I've also um, become more interested in uh, probably in recent years in some other um, ways of spreading the message, like so, I mean, even social media, for example. Um, I was a bit reluctant to engage in that initially. I thought, how can you, um, you know, how can you possibly convey something meaningful in um, you know, when Twitter started off, it was 140 characters. It's, it's yeah. um, but, but, you know, you can. And, and it's not going to solve someone's life or, or say, you know, or, well, 
Um, well, actually, you know, I guess again, I battle with this because I constantly think it's it's not really deep and meaningful. It's not enough. But then I frequently get feedback from people saying, you know, thank you that that tweet just got me at the right time, or that Instagram post, or you know, I just needed to hear that today. So even though I, um, and, and, and some people do um, look down, I don't know if I look down on it as a way, but, but you know, I think some people underestimate, and, and I've underestimated the, the importance or the gravitas that it can have. There's no doubt that it can make a difference to someone's day. And if, you know, if, if, that's, if it makes a difference to someone's day, and just maybe and it gets them over a hump or through a difficult period or just gets them up and out of bed and gets some momentum going, well, well that's a great thing. So, so I guess, you know, so initially my focus was very much on writing, which I love to do, and, and I've still done a bit of, but, and then it moved into, um, well, that led me a bit into, into some media, and um, I, I did some TV, which was interesting, and radio, and, and then more recently, um, I guess, you know, I mean, podcasts are becoming the, um, the sort of hot thing that we, you know, for the last few years have been sort of the hot thing, which, are, which is quite exciting, so I've done a, been involved in a couple of those as well. Yeah, that's exciting. And, um, I tend to agree as well. With from a social media perspective, sometimes we think that because it feels so short and people's attention spans on those things um, are barely there sometimes. But you just never know how a few words can lead into something else, like into research or um, you know into learning about someone's story. Then you know that can also change how you perceive things. Um, so I tend to agree. And you did mention that your other passions are around writing, um, journaling, things like that. So one of my questions was about your passions, because I know you love psychology because, you, you know, you've got three degrees in it and you've been, you've put your um, heart and soul into the work and helping people. Is there anything else other than psychology, human behaviour, helping others um, that you've invested or you've dabbled in, in terms of a passion or a passion project? Um, well, not so, much, uh, not so much from a from a work or professional perspective. I mean, I guess, so outside of my, my direct um, business work, I suppose, um, I have been very involved and now I'm very passionate uh, and have been for quite a few years now about youth mental health. So there's a I might get a plug in for the charity that I do a lot of work for, B-A-T-Y-R. We do fantastic work for, um, um, well, well, it's all around smashing the stigma uh, associated with mental health. So they predominantly go to schools um, and, and increasingly universities. Their focus is on young people. Um, and, and the idea is that, um, it, well, we know from the research that we can, you know, we can have fantastic psychologists and psychiatrists and um, we can have the best treatments and services in the world. I'm not saying we do, but but even if we did, we know that a significant number of people would never present. Like only about one in four people actually go to their GP or go to a psychologist, and um, so that means you know three out of four or thereabouts, you know, seventy or eighty percent, are not actually or actively seeking help. Um, so they're suffering more than they need to. They're suffering in silence, um, and that's really that's, that's sad. It's frustrating. It's a pity. And there are a variety of reasons for that. And some of them, I mean, I touched earlier on finances. That's obviously an issue. But one of the big ones is stigma. Um, that feeling that, um, um, you know, I'll be negatively judged. Um, I'll be, you know, be, I'll be, be, be um, shameful or embarrassing. Um, and so that's, uh, and, but we, we know if we can break that, if we can break down those, um, those barriers, the stigma, um, more people will seek help and, and get better, um, which is great. So, so that, that's Batia's focus, that they don't directly offer psychological services, but they focus very much on smashing the stigma, increasing help-seeking behaviour, um, and thereby um, 
you know, helping more people get to those people who can help them. So, so that's something I'm very passionate about, which is obviously related to my, um, to my work. Um, but I give them a lot of my time outside of that. Um, well, I guess on a, so that I'm not sure whether you mean for fun or for, um, or for, but, but I am very passionate about fairness and equality. Um, so, um, in recent, well, I guess, well, forever, but particularly in recent years, um, uh, Local, local political, you know, a number of local political issues have um, um, become, I'm very passionate about, and, and internationally, um, you know, I think politics is at a, we probably don't want to get into this, but <laughs> I think we're at a very interesting stage in both world and, and national politics. Um, uh, I'm not at all happy with a lot of it, um, and so that's something I'm very passionate about. I think the world, in, I mean, the, the world is fantastic in lots of ways, and there are lots of great people doing great things, and the world's getting better in lots of ways, and it's important not to forget that. But we're also seeing, um, you know, I think increasing levels of inequality and unfairness and, and I mean, even issues that don't directly affect me, for example, but like a, a year or two ago, you know, I was very passionate about the uh, same-sex marriage debate because I, for me, it was just an issue of, um, of equality and fairness. Um, I'm very passionate about, about the environment. So, so those sorts of things on a um, kind of on a pretty serious note. <laughs> those yeah, things yeah. On, a, on a more fun note i'm quite passionate about about music um i love live music um i love reading um and i mean i love bushwalking so that i mean there's some of the i love sport and so there's some of the things that uh um that i do when i'm not thinking about or talking about psychology yeah 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 um if, if so batia that's what the charity name is right i'll put in a link as well how yeah, great. It? Yeah, batyr.com.au. Um, yeah, That'd be fantastic. Yeah, perfect. Um, I love what they're doing because when I think back to when I was in high school, we never, ever had any discussions about mental health, not once. Mm. Um, so I think it's so important that that's coming in really early. And I'm sure so many young people yeah. would struggle with mental health as well. Like there's so much going on at that age. Um, so that's really great to hear that they're, um, supporting youth um, on the on the passions that you discussed um, one thing I like to know about you know how people I love to know how people discover what their passions are because I think there's a lot of us out there that maybe haven't come across things that really give them energy or that they really care about how would you how would you say that you've you know found um, these topics to be really meaningful to you like is it through research reading like what do you think has made you passionate about some of these things well i think in terms of finding psychology um it, look and i well i think there's quite a bit of luck involved i, I do think i'm i was genuinely lucky to have found a career that i love and passionate about and turned out to be reasonably good at i mean and i do think there's a bit of luck involved for all those things to come together, but there are also a few, a few other practical um, factors, I suppose, that contributed to that. One, I do think I was very lucky to have parents who um, encouraged us to do what we wanted to do. To, you know, they they didn't say you have to be a, you know, a lawyer or an accountant or a doctor or anything like that. They, um, I mean, they wanted us to do well at school. So education was was a very important part of our upbringing, um, and academic performance was you know, was, was quite important, but, um, but I think, but, you know, and I, I probably didn't appreciate as much at the time, but looking back now that I've got teenage children I and mean, looking back now, and you know, I do think my parents were, were fantastically supportive and saying, look, do 
really do what you want to do. Um, and so I, um, you know, I was interested in psychology um, and it turned out that, you know, that, well, that developed into something much more than just an interest, obviously. So, yeah. so that's how, I, and then within psychology, finding my passions, yeah, a lot, I mean, some of it was trial and error. Um, you know, I think if I, um, I forget about this sometimes, but in my very early days, my, I thought my goal was to work with, with children and adolescents. That was, um, and it almost, with the tear, I almost have come back to that indirectly, yes. but but um but i did do, i do remember trying that at the time and then and finding that it, that it wasn't quite what i thought it was and i didn't enjoy it as much and then i ended up in an area working with i spent a lot of my early career helping people with chronic pain uh which i would never have thought of which I, well, I never thought of really until it came up um but i had an opportunity that was one of my first jobs and it turned out to be a fascinating area it was a and i loved it because um well without going into the details working with pe people with chronic pain involves it's a fantastic, um, it's the nexus really of the, the physical and the psychological. Um, it involved working with a multidisciplinary team, which I love to do. So again, it, it wasn't something I'd thought of much in advance, but it came about and turned out to be really satisfying and fulfilling. So, so I do think there's, got to be, there's a bit of luck involved, but definitely trial and error. You know, I think people should just should try different things or, and even different things within a particular discipline. Um, but you can also look to role models and you know look to other people you admire and, and copy them in a sense. Although you know the risk there is, well, we don't want people to, to just copy for the sake of copying. You can copy to trial and then see if it works for you. And that's important. Um, so yeah, that that's I don't know if that answers your question, but I think there are a whole range of factors. Um, and then and you know and, and perseverance and persistence. I mean, there were things didn't run smoothly all the way. There were bits and pieces that. <laughs> that I failed at and, and uh, obstacles and adversity along the way. But, um, you know, I think I, well, perseverance is one of my strengths. So I stuck at it through yeah. some of those difficult times. And, um, uh, you know, thankfully most of it's turned out um, reasonably okay. Yeah. And which is so <coughs> when you're running a business as well, because there's so many highs and lows to running a business. But I really like that advice about, you know, just following what you're interested in and the trial and error to find out what parts of it you like, what parts of it you don't, and what you'd want to pursue further. The other um, thing, sorry, just to come back, the other thing that I remember that um, I have, although my whole career has pretty much been in psychology, so essentially I've had one straight career, it has actually changed directions quite a few times. I said I, initially I was a clinician, then a clinical academic, then I had a private practice, and then I shifted more into positive psychology practice, and even within that I've shifted from being a therapist and a coach to more of a consultant and public speaker and so along the way there have been a number of changes and I remember I was actually talking to um, or someone sought my advice a week or so ago a few weeks ago about about making a career change and one of the things that I did um, I don't and I don't think I necessarily thought about it but one of the things I've done quite well is that almost all of those changes have been sort of slow and gradual changes and I think sometimes people think when they've got to make a, a career change say that it's kind of all or nothing but you know, initially, when I went into private practice, for example, I started part-time. So I stayed on in my, um, and I had a job at a, at a teaching hospital in university, um, and I stayed on there, I can't remember exactly, but I think three days a week, and then started my private practice. Uh, and then as that built, I cut down to two days a week and built the private. And I've done the same, I mean, with the Happiness Institute, for example, I mean, that started as a, kind of as a hobby on the side. I still had my big, thriving clinical psychology practice. But then as that grew, um, so I think there's, and again, I think there's an important lesson that we, we can make, when we make changes or if we want to make changes, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. You can start off just doing a little bit 
Um, and that can partly be a trial stage as well. And if it works, as that becomes successful, as it builds up, you can gradually reduce or cut back on the other thing um, and talk until you get the right, and maybe you stay with both of them as well, but you know, getting the balance right. Yeah, absolutely. And it also gives you that security as well if you're hmm. still working, you know, in your day, experimenting with whatever else on the side. It doesn't give you that pressure of an all-in, yeah. you know, approach. So, no, that's a really, really good one. Um, I wanted to dive into um, the book, The Happiness Handbook Strategies for a Happy Life, because this is the book um, that you sent me a while ago, which I really, really loved. Um, one of the questions I wanted to ask you about it was about uh, the notion of happiness. Um, I feel like as a society, we are really obsessed with being happy. We want to be happy. We want to be fulfilled. We always want that feeling. So I wanted to understand from you, what is the definition of happiness from a science perspective? Um, and what are your thoughts on, you know, how we can begin living a life that's that's more fulfilling um and a, and a happier life i suppose yeah um great great, great question and i think you've uh, you know you've hidden a couple of really important points within the question particularly with that word fulfilling so um so psychologists have actually defined we, we can define happiness in lots of different ways there are multiple definitions um but i i often just go back to sort of two of the simplest ones i suppose so the the simplest definition of happiness, um, the one that most people are probably most familiar with in a way, is that it's it's one of many, uh, one of one of several positive emotions. Um, so we all know, we all experience a range of positive and negative emotions. The, the so-called negative emotions are things like anxiety, um, fear, anger, frustration, sadness. These are all normal human emotions and um, uh, we're all familiar with them in different levels. But then we also experience uh, positive emotions, things like happiness, joy, contentment, calm, satisfaction. Um, so the simplest definition of happiness is that it's one of those, um, those positive emotions that we're all familiar with. But that's not really what positive psychology, well, that's not, yeah, that's not really what positive psychology is about. Or it's only part of what positive psychology is about because when positive psychology talks about happiness or uh, what positive psychology really talks about is thriving and flourishing. Um, that involves positive emotions. I mean, they're very important. We can't, we can't live our best lives without positive emotions. But, but it also involves much more than that. So when, when positive psychology is talking about thriving and flourishing or living a fulfilling life, what it's talking about is, yes, positive emotions, but also um, engaging fully with life by utilising our strengths, um, uh, building positive relationships, uh, uh, maintaining good physical health and well-being, uh, fostering hope and optimism, practicing gratitude, uh, all of those things come together. And the difference is that I suppose that initially that first definition of happiness as a positive emotion, um, it's good, but it's quite it's fleeting. You know, they'll come and go within seconds or minutes, whereas thriving and flourishing, as I talked about in the latter definition, the broader definition, is a much deeper, more meaningful um, sense of fulfillment, I suppose. So it's not just kind of feeling good because something good's happened. Um, it's about really living our best possible lives. And within that, we won't feel good every minute of every day. And that's an important part of thriving and flourishing as well, to understand that, and again, we're not gonna just experience positive emotions. Um, we're gonna experience those negative emotions as well. And that's okay. In fact, that can be good sometimes. It's useful sometimes. So um, so they're kind of the two different ones. And, and again, what 
positive psychology is really focused on the latter. It's really about thriving and flourishing and living our best lives, um, not just kind of feeling good for a few minutes, which is, which is what some people might call hedonism, um, which is not the same thing. Well, and I do, and I do think that people may not understand that they're that they're taking happiness um, when it comes to that fulfilling feeling as being that emotional feeling of happiness and the need to have that high. Um, so I think it's really important to be able to share the message that you just have with people, so that they're not mixing the two. Because I think that often people will. Think that you know buying a new outfit or you know um, going to going you know traveling or having you know expensive holidays or things like that will make them happy it will and they and it's not a bad thing that they're feeling that positive emotion but it's different to when we're talking about that sense of flourishing and, and thriving as you mentioned um, definitely and that's I mean well, sorry one of the things I, I actually spend a lot of a lot of my time busting you know busting myths and misconceptions about happiness and that's yeah, that's one of the big ones is, um, you know, can you be happy all the time? And, and the simple answer is no, of course not. It would be, it would actually be pretty weird if you were happy all the time. It would be kind of abnormal and, um, or it would be very unusual. Um, you know, those, um, what I referred to earlier is those negative emotions. And I don't really like to call them that because it, it sort of implies they're bad and, and they're not always bad. But, but those negative emotions of, of anxiety and fear and sadness and grief and they're, they're important in many ways. That's what makes us human and that's what connects us in many ways to other people. So we need to try to find a way of seeing the positive in those negative emotions, of integrating them into a full and meaningful life. Yeah. I love that you just said um, <coughs> busting. You, you do myth busting. What's another myth, um, like another really well-known myth that you'd want people to know um, is untrue or... Um, <coughs> Is not well understood. Oh, there's, there's so <laughs> many. Um, really, I mean, you touched on one earlier. That, I mean, living in um, living in a capitalist consumerism consumerist society, which, which is again, is not entirely bad. In fact, there's lots of good things about it. But but you know, we're we're often well, we're frequently told that you know you will be happier if you buy this new shirt or get that new iPhone or whatever it might be. And um, and clearly, that's not true. Well, I mean, you summed it up beautifully before. You know, you might feel better for a few minutes or days or whatever it is, but it's not that really deep and meaningful happiness that we, that we really want. And, and I think most of us know that, but, but, you know, we're constantly bombarded with thousands of messages every day from, you know, from advertising and marketing and that um, it's very easy to get sucked into that. Oh, you know, um, it, and it's what I sometimes call the tyranny of when I'll be happy when, um, yeah. when I've got that new thing or when, um, but that's, that's quite dangerous because it's not, um, you know, what it can do is set us up for constant disappointment and frustration. And um, obviously that's not good for our happiness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another, another topic from the book that really stood out to me, and it's something that we talk about a lot on this podcast, which is negative self-talk. So a lot of the time, um, the people that <coughs> this podcast are working, you know, in companies, they often find themselves in positions where they are telling themselves negative stories, putting themselves down, um, and it can be quite amplified in a scenario when you're in a meeting or you're with much more senior people in that meeting or you're just trying to complete a project. Um, and one of the topics that you cover is about optimism um, in your book. And you do mention that there's, no, there's not one thing that's, you know, 
the most important or one thing you can do to have that fulfilling life. But if there was one thing that was just, you know, you thought was um, really, really important to start practicing and start thinking about was how we can become more optimistic and more positive. Um, and one story that really stood out to me was when you were talking about um, the grandmother, she was 92 years old and she was being moved into the nursing home and she had just lost her husband of 70 years. And before she even walked into what her room was um, and the nurse was about to take her, she was just, she was saying how um, she loved it. She loved it already. She was excited um, and you could, you know, the positive energy and her face lit up and the nurse turned around and said, you haven't even seen the room. But her response was, I don't, I don't need to, I, I choose to be excited. I'm going to be excited. Um, and I think having that state of mind is quite a strong one to be able to decide your emotion, decide the outcome of, you know, what you're going to feel about something before you even experience it. So I would love to hear um, what, you know, your thoughts about optimism and how people can move away from negative self-talk and start practicing being more optimistic. Yeah. Um, well, I, I'd probably just slightly modify. I mean, I wrote that book a few years ago now and I might modify it slightly <laughs> saying that, that if, um, well, I said there's not one thing that leads to happiness. Um, that would still make my top two, but I'd probably also say building positive relationships. I mean, that's, you know, the research suggests that's probably the most important thing for our health and well-being and happiness wow. and longevity. But, but optimism is crucial to that as well. Um, uh, funnily enough, um, I'm exceptionally good at negative self-talk. <laughs> um, so really? I do it all the time. Although um, I'm mostly aware of it and mostly I try to catch myself and do something about it. And so that, that's the good news. So no, I can say, I guess it's good. I can certainly relate to people who are pessimistic and engage in negative talk. Um, and I guess I can... I try to be as an example of someone who's definitely not perfect at it uh, and who's not a natural optimist, but who's learned um, more often than not to try to counteract it. So, mm -hmm. so that, and I suppose that's the first thing. The first thing is to just become aware of it. Most of us aren't even aware of all those thoughts that buzz through our mind every minute of every day. Um, it's they become, we get so used to them, become so automatic that um, um, most people just kind of accept them. They just take them. We, um, and I suppose, so again, that's probably the first thing is one, to become aware of them, to, to become more, it's a form of mindfulness, to become more mindful, more conscious of what it is you're saying to yourself, because you can't, you can't change something or you can't even decide if you want to change something if you don't even know what it is. So that, that's got to be the starting point, And that's where I'd encourage people to, and there are various ways you can become more mindful, which is just to, to stop and pay attention more often. So you know, set yourself an alarm or set certain times during the day and just pause only for a couple of minutes maybe and just say, what, what am I thinking now? What am I saying to myself now? Um, you can also write that down. It can be really helpful to write it down um, just in a little journal or a notepad. Uh, again, just pause a couple of times each day for a couple of minutes and just write down what you're thinking. And what you'll find then is that you'll become much more aware of what you're saying. Um, and what you'll probably realise or what you'll probably learn for, for most people is that within that, um, there's good and bad or helpful and unhelpful. Um, not all of it will be negative. Um, and so you don't have to change every single thought. Um, but some of them, I mean, most of us and some more than others will have some negative, unhelpful thoughts, things that are creating more distress than they need to, things that are holding you back or you know, impeding your relationships or affecting your work or whatever. Um, and so it's those ones we particularly want to uh, look at. Um, and then... Uh, where possible, try to challenge them or change them. And, and we can do that by questioning ourselves. That 
the same way you might question a friend or a colleague. If you know, if you're in a team meeting, I think you referred to being in the workplace. If you're in a team meeting and someone said something that you didn't entirely agree with, you wouldn't necessarily just accept it. Um, you might question them about, say, well, you know, what's the evidence for that, or you know, what do we really know that's true? And we can do the same things to ourselves. It's a bit like debating ourselves. Um, and you know, so there's, a, there's another myth actually. People think that if you talk to yourself, it's a sign of insanity. Uh, it's not true at all. If you talk to yourself in the right way, it's a very, very helpful strategy. And that's kind of what this is about. It's learning to be aware of your thoughts, to understand what they are, and where appropriate, question them so that you're not thinking unhelpful, unrealistic thoughts as often, but maybe thinking more helpful, more realistic ones. And then if you can make them habitual, you can get to the point where they become automatic. Um, then I guess it's just like anything else. The more you practice it, the easier it become. It's, it's not always easy, but the more you practice it, the easier it become, the better you get at it and the more rewards that you'll reap. Yeah. And when you mention uh, it's a form of being mindful, uh, does, is that linked to practicing meditation as well? Is that one way people can start becoming more aware of <coughs> Definitely. So I think, I mean, mindfulness um, has become very popular in recent years uh, and, and that's for good reason. It's, it's a very effective strategy. We know that people that can, people that practice mindfulness on a regular basis tend to be happier and healthier. Um, but it's also misunderstood a lot. And again, there are a lot of myths and misconceptions about it. So, uh, but, but one of the, we can be mindful of all sorts of things. Um, but one thing that we can be mindful of is our thinking uh, or our thinking and our feeling. Um, and I would definitely encourage people to practice that on a regular basis. Again, even if it's just for a couple of minutes, two or three times a day, mm. um, to pause and essentially just say, again, you know, what am I thinking now? That, that's all mindfulness is. It's being more aware, more self-aware um, of either our thoughts and our feelings. I mean, we can also be mindful of, of our eating. Uh, we can be more, more mindful of how we re react or relate to other people. But, but in this context, I definitely encourage people because I think they could, almost all of us could benefit from becoming more mindful of our thoughts and feelings um, and then deciding whether, whether you know, if they're good, then great. Um, but, uh, or, or some things we just, we need to accept them for what they are or some things we might need to look at. Um, can I possibly, or would I benefit from changing them? Uh, and if the answer is yes, then, uh, then again, starting to practice what we need to do to, to challenge or change those thoughts and develop more constructive, more helpful ones. Yeah. Yeah. And I like the fact that you put in there that you need to build a habit around it, because I think for things like this, if you're doing it just here and there, you're not actually practicing and it's more of an effort to do. So something like spending maybe is five minutes sufficient, just five minutes to think about it every single day. Well, look, look like with a lot of things. So, so the, um, the, the, analogy or the comparison I often make is with physical exercise. Um, so, you know, you can't just go to the gym once and expect to be fit and strong for the rest of your life. We kind of, we know that. Um, uh, I've tried, it doesn't work. You know? <laughs> you've got to, you've got to go to the gym, um, you know, well, it depends on what your goals are, but let's just, you know, say four or five times a week or three or four times a week for a reasonable amount of time, you know, at least 35, 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, and you've got to do it for weeks and weeks and months and months um, or indefinitely really. Um, if you want to get fit and strong, you've got to exercise regularly and keep it up. Um, and it's the same for our brain. If we want to get fit and strong mentally, it's the same sort of thing. So, you know, as a general rule, um, starting with anything is better than nothing. So, yes, if all you can do is two or three minutes a day, 
great, that's a start. But up to a point, the more the better. Um, not, not indefinitely, because you can overdo these things. I don't want people sitting there thinking about their thoughts every minute of every day. Yeah. Um, that might be a bit too much. And then just like, you know, just like you can go to the gym too much, you can overtrain. So, so you yeah. know, there's a balance here. But, but as a general rule, starting with two or three minutes a day, great, that's a start. But a bit more than that will probably be a bit better. Um, you know, so five minutes a day, two or three times a day would probably be better. Um, as long as you're doing it in the right way. So, um, but yeah, if you can build these into your life, I mean, it, it, the other um, comparison I often make is um, brushing our teeth. I mean, most people brush our teeth um, every morning or every morning and every night without really even thinking about it. It's just what we do. Um, yeah. And well, hopefully, then that's great. And we, I mean, because we know that it's good for our dental health, which is also good for our physical health. And um, so what we, you know, what I say is we need to make meditation um, and exercise and any of the other things, we need to make them like brushing our teeth so yeah. that we just do them, um, you know, once a day, twice a day, depending on what that particular habit is. And if you can, I mean, if you can get to that point where those things which are going to benefit your lives, you know, from brushing your teeth to exercise to meditation to whatever it is, if you can make them just regular habits, then you'll almost certainly be living a good and a happy life. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, applying that, um, and I'd love your thoughts as well, applying that to, to moments where you do start making assumptions and creating stories that may not be true um, by just taking one fact and not seeing everything else. Um, I think with those big moments that come about, definitely using those as moments to practice some of these things, some of these steps. Definitely. But the, the point is, so you, um, you know, you're talking about some uh, classic examples of unhelpful thinking, like um, mm. overgeneralizing, making yes. assumptions. Um, yeah. But what a lot of people do is, um, and I was talking to someone about this other day who, who, who experiences um, you know, quite moderate to, to severe anxiety. Um, and she, you know, you know, sort of you practice these strategies that, um, you know, we'd previously talked about said, no, because I haven't had the anxiety for a while. Well, this is what a lot of people do. They wait till the anxiety or they wait till the depression and they wait till the things hit and then try to do it. But that's when it's at its hardest. We need to practice these. This is why we need to practice them on a regular basis every day so that when we need them most, we're more able to do it. We need to build up our skills during the good times, not just wait for the bad times, so that we can use them during the bad times or the tough times. Um, because if you just wait till... You know, you're really upset or really anxious or really distressed. That's the that's the hardest possible time to do to, to apply the strategies, and you'll only be able to do apply them effectively if you've previously practiced them on a regular basis. So, and whatever it's going to be for you, again, whether it's mindfulness or meditation or um, or exercise or whether it's you know, challenging those assumptions or those overgeneralizing thoughts. Um, you need to do that on a regular daily basis, not just when the hard times hit. Yeah, I think that's a, probably another myth buster because I think people probably do think that they're just going to address things when they are hard and difficult versus that daily practice. Um, another really big topic that I've seen more recently, and maybe it's because I've just been more focused on it, but you touch on it um, in your book as well, it's about where people start beginning, start begin feeling a little bit lost in life, uh, as if they 
don't know what their purpose is. Uh, they're not excited about the work that they're doing anymore. They're not driven. Um, and they sort of lose clarity about what matters to them. And mm. so you speak about clarity being hugely important to happiness. Would you mind speaking about some of the strategies for people who may be struggling with that, you know, sense of um, not having a purpose and not having something that really energizes them and um, gets them excited, gets them out of bed. Um, yeah. Would you mind speaking a little bit about that? Yeah, look, I think it's vitally important. I mean, it's, um, it's, that's what, uh, that, that's what gives us direction in life. You know, it's like a, it's like the GPS system in your car. If you just hop in a car and, and sort of drive aimlessly, who knows where you'll end up. Um, but that's what a lot of people do in life. They just, wander through life aimlessly and then wonder why they don't end up where they want to end up. <laughs> mm. um, so some people, I guess there's a couple of different things. Some people ne are never, uh, sorry, never know what that is. Um, some people have it, but then lose it. Um, some people have it, but then things around them change. So they, they need to change. So there's a couple of different reasons, but at whatever stage of life you are, um, uh, finding at least some clarity and direction is vitally important. Cause as you said, that's what, that's what gives us, uh, a reason to get get out of bed and to to persevere and to do what we might need to do. So, um, so again, and, and I mean, this is a really hard. This is possibly one of the biggest questions in life. I mean, it's almost it's almost like the meaning of life. So, mm -hmm. so um, again, I encourage people to to not think about it in too black or white a way. Don't worry. It's not like you have it or you don't have it. Um, um, I just encourage people to think about even if they can see a tiny bit of it, then follow that. Or if they feel uh, that a little, you know, something might be close to that then. So trial and error, I guess, is, is one way that we can really find this, just trying different things. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean pursuing your passion as a career or a job. Um, for certain people, that's, you know, that, that might not be financially practical and we've got to be realistic about it. Um, if you can, I mean, and this is where, again, I feel lucky, if you can do what you love and make a good living out of it, then fantastic. Um, but, but, you know, for example, I guess the classic example is maybe um, artists and writers where um, some people can, but it really, the reality is it really is quite difficult. So, but what we can do is, um, you know, take a practical approach and find a job that's going to pay the bills because um, that's, you know, that's life. We've got to, got to live in the real world um, and do that on the side or, or even better if they can bring their creative talents to their workplace. Then, you know, so there's, there's different ways of blending and, um, uh, or mixing them, uh, or as we said earlier, with changing careers or changing jobs, doing part-time things or bits and pieces on the side. So, but you know, I think it is important to to, to have some idea of, of clarity and and um, to to get it a bit more practical. I suppose one of the things that that comes down to is being clear about your values. Um, and again, I think so many people don't give this enough thought. Um, but we know for a fact that people that live a value-driven life, people that uh, spend as much as possible of their lives living according to their values. Um, and that would differ from person, you know, my values are, might be different to your values. They might overlap a bit, but we're all different. So, but, but that's really what living a good life is about. So, you know, I touched on this a bit earlier. Some of my values are fairness and equality. Mm -hmm. um, some of my values are about, about love and kindness. Um, so for me, you know, to live a good life, I need to think about, and so what can I do each and every day um, to live those values. Um, and if I do that, I know I feel better. Um, uh, now, how I do that and the extent to which I do it will vary from day to day and depending on what I'm doing. But, but you know, the happiest people in some way or other 
do think about that, consciously think about it each and every day. How can I live my best life? How can I uh, live according to my values? What does that actually look like? Um, but if you don't even know what your values are, um, you can't do that. Um, and that's what, you know, I think a lot of people are a bit lost in that. They've just never sat down and thought about it. Um, so, I mean, there's some really simple things people can do. And I sometimes tell people, just go onto Google and, and just Google values, life values, search for them. Because um, again, some people don't even have the language. Um, and you'll probably find you know, lots of different lists and, and long lists. Um, and then I just said, look, just pick the top, you know, whatever the top, t this is just a really simple informal way. There are some more formal tests people can do, but <coughs> so just pick your top two or three. Um, and if, you know, for example, kindness is one, um, what can you do each and every day to be kind? How can you be a kind person um, at home with your family, uh, at work with your colleagues, um, with the community or world more generally? Um, and if you can, if you've got whatever your top two or three or maybe four or five values are, if you can just do little things each and every day, they get, and they don't have to be life-changing or earth-shattering. You know, not all of us are going to change the world necessarily, uh, but we don't have to. We we can just um, we can just change our worlds and and the the small world around us with you know my wife and kids and friends and colleagues and that's that's my world. And if I can make that a bit kinder or if I can. Uh, make that a little bit better in some way um, and if we all did that uh, yeah. then we would have a better world I suppose a happier world with more people doing what they love to do and what they're good at doing yeah I really like that um, and maybe just <coughs> you know how you mentioned a simple way to start would be just to google life values or values um, and have a read through them do you think that the values that we hold really close to us they come from things that have happened to us that make us feel more inclined towards one value or another because there's there's obviously so many great values out there and there's things like you know loyalty kindness love there's so many that apply to so many so many of us um what do you think it is about um us being drawn to specific ones just to give um the listener an idea of maybe what to think about while they're doing this search yeah that's a good point so because if we go back to the one of the questions is what um, you know, what, what does influence our values? And, and there are many, many factors, but the, I guess some of the big guns are, are our, our family, like our parents, for example. So our parents are very influential. Um, our religious or cultural upbringing uh, be very influential. Um, and then other significant, other significant others in our lives. So maybe, a, maybe even a teacher or an uncle. Or, um, but so there's all of those sorts of things that can affect that. And, and that's okay. That, there's nothing wrong with that at all. In fact, you can't avoid the fact that our parents, for example, are going to be very influential on our lives and in all sorts of ways. And again, that's not a bad thing. But what we do need to actually ask is just because that was, you know, just because mum valued that or just because that was dad, do I necessarily need to accept it? Now, I might. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we often do follow sort of similar paths in some ways, and that's okay. Um, or similarly, with, you know, just because I was um, brought up with a particular religious belief that then are associated with certain values, do I necessarily still, do I choose, am I going to choose to hold on to that? Uh, now, again, if you do, then that's fine. But one of the problems I, see, I saw a lot as a clinician and as a coach was people following a path in life that their parents or other people had set that wasn't really true to them. Um, and again, and I'm not being critical of, of parents at all, but, um, but that's something we need, to, we need to really ask ourselves. Is this, am I being me or am I being who mum or dad wanted me to be or who my, you know, my 
local church leader wanted me to be again. Now, now again, it's not, it, I'm not entirely saying, saying that that's entirely wrong, but it can be for some of us. It can actually lead us to, um, to doing certain things and making certain choices that are not relevant for us for different reasons. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's something we, we need, each of us needs to consciously choose what's relevant for us, what, what values are, and, and if it's the same as your family, then fantastic. But if it's different, um, then we need to be bold enough to make that change. And, and there may well be certain consequences to that. You know, we might need to have some difficult conversations with our parents or with um, some difficult conversations around cultural or religious beliefs. And, but ultimately, I would argue that those difficult conversations would be worth it if, you know, if you can work it out in the right sort of way. I 100% agree. And do you think that when your values <coughs> are clashing or they aren't aligned to what you were maybe raised with, do you think that that's when you get that gut feeling and a sense of this is what I've been taught to do, or this is what I'm supposed to do, but is it is it that feeling that, you know, that gut feeling that you get where you're not so sure if you're doing the right thing for the right reason? Like how do you identify how do you sense that, you know, it's not my value, it's someone else's? Uh, yeah, it, it could be that, or it could also be, I used to see a lot um, in my practice of people who would, um, uh, you know, who would achieve all sorts of things and ostensibly have you know, successful lives, but be coming into me and say, look, just, but it just doesn't make me happy. Um, and actually a, a classic example that comes to mind, and I was talking about this um, recently in something else that, uh, uh, was a client I had was years ago now, but he was a very successful lawyer. Like, well, he's a partner of, of a big firm here in Sydney. Um, and on almost every measure, you would say he was very successful. Like he was one of the top partners in his particular area in Australia, you know, very financially successful, um, big house, you know, European car, all those sorts of things. Um, but I just really didn't give him satisfaction. It turns out after a while, after we explored a few things, that he'd actually always wanted to be a teacher. But his parents, for different reasons, had kind of, uh, well, I was going to say forced, but, you know, encouraged him to study law. Um, and, and again, I said something similar earlier. It's, it, he didn't hate it necessarily. In fact, you know, any kind of, there were aspects of it that he really enjoyed and he was clearly good at it. Mm. But for a variety of reasons that became clearer as we explored certain values, um, it wasn't really fulfilling his needs as an individual. Um, now, you know, to cut a long story short, we didn't necessarily, we decided that it, wasn't necessarily the best idea for him at that stage of his life to change careers necessarily but we did look at ways that he could how he could bring in some of his values and some of his passions and strengths into his practice of the law so, so essentially we rather than making a massive career change which would be very difficult and have lots of different consequences etc yeah. we, we sort of looked at how can he not change his career but change the way he thought about and, and approached his career and that that certainly led to to some more fulfillment and satisfaction coming from his work yeah, I really like that one because there's something else that um, there was some other research that's come through about job crafting where yep, you are, yeah, it, yeah, so it sounds <coughs> where you're designing your work based on um, what excites you, what makes you happy, what you're really good at rather than just following what the job description tells you. So that's really interesting to hear. Um, I wanted to shift gears a little bit to talk about the companies that you are working for or you've worked for in the past. So you help teams be more happy at work, uh, leading to better engagement, morale and satisfaction. Can you talk about what some of the common challenges are that are preventing people to be happy or fulfilled at work? And what are some of the things that you uh, do with them or for them um, to help them overcome those obstacles or challenges? 
Look, to be perfectly honest, it's a lot of what we've already spoken about. Um, you know, that when I go into it with an organization, not to speak to an organization, um, it, it's, a, it's always a bit different. Um, and in, at the risk of oversimplifying it, um, one, you know, one of the things I'll often ask the organization is, do you want, so, so the work that I do can vary from focusing very much on building a positive culture and enhancing happiness at work and engagement, et cetera, through to just working, so just last week, for example, the, um, the owner of this business invited me to speak at one of, at their retreat. Um, and he said, I don't want to talk about work at all. This is just a, um, so it's just a reward for them. So it's just about how can they be happy as individuals. And it's just about happiness in their lives. So there's kind of happiness at work and positivity and positive culture and engagement. Then there's just happiness. Um, and then there's sort of all the things in the middle. To be perfectly honest, the basic principles don't really change that much. Mm. I mean, you're, you're still the same person, um, you know, on the weekend when you're with your friends as you are on Monday morning when you walk into the office. Um, there are some differences and we do behave differently, uh, obviously, in some contexts. Um, so there are some differences and so I do change what I do and change the focus a bit. But, but to come back to your question, the point is it's, it's pretty much the same sorts of issues that we've all discussed. One of the biggest ones when it comes to the workplace, um, and this comes back to those myths and misconceptions, uh, one of the biggest obstacles, I suppose, is the idea that, uh, that happiness is um, uh, frivolous or it's a waste of time. Um, why would I want my employees to be happy? You know, I just want them to work hard. Um, now, I don't often have to deal with that because those sorts of people don't invite me in necessarily. The people that invite me in tend to already, they um, you know, tend to be on site. But that is a, that is a um, uh, you know, again, I get a, a, a myth or a misconception and a bit of an obstacle. And my response to that is that they're, they're very closely related. We, I mean, we know that happiness, when we define it properly, uh, when we talk about it in you know, not just fleeting positive emotions, but, but we, we know that genuinely happy people, those people that are living their best lives, uh, applying their strengths, living to their values, uh, are better employees. So we know that happy employees are better employees, so they are more productive and they, uh, they, they collaborate better. Um, so that's the, the answer, in a sense, is seeing happiness as a useful business strategy, really. Um, you know, and I would argue that there's good research now. We, we know that it's, you know, it's energizing, it's motivating. Uh, as I said, we're happy employees collaborate better together, so they work better as teams. So there are significant business advantages uh, that come from creating an environment that, um, that allows for people to be their best every day in the workplace. Mm, absolutely. I think, I think it's... <coughs> um good to start thinking about work and the workplace, not just as numbers and resources, but of actual people. Everything that comes out into market has been brought to you by a person. A person is working on every single aspect of that business. So you're so right. Everything um, you've just, we've been talking about applies to people at work. They are people. It's just, how they are delivering it or how they're using it to their advantage when they're in a workplace. Um, that's kind of the differentiating factor. And I really like that you touched on strengths because that was another one that was highlighted in your book as well. Like strengths are so important. And just to touch on some of the things you said, it's so energizing to be doing things that you're good at and understanding what you're good at is so important to your well-being at work um, and in, in, in life in general, just because it gives you that 
confidence. It gives you that boost of energy. Um, so I think knowing what your strengths are is a really easy one. And I know that um, I'll put the link in the show notes. There was um, a free quiz that you had in the book as well that I actually used it. Um, I think it's really helpful just to identify your areas of strengths and to sort of be able to link back to your work and what you do and realize that you're so good at certain areas. It's just, it's become second nature to you that you don't think of it as a strength. You just think it's so easy. Everyone can do it. Um, so I'll definitely share that one. Um, so then when you're working um, with these companies, um, what do you, what can you see immediately uh, as traits in people who you see as great leaders? Um, so yeah, I'd love to know what your thoughts are on what makes a great leader. Uh, well, it's a good question. I, I don't, I don't actually think there's any one way to be a great leader. Uh, a, a great leader to go back to the point you just made. A great leader is actually a leader who leads with his or her strengths. Yeah. Um, so you know, my if I'm being the best leader that I can be, that won't be exactly the same as you being the best leader that you can be. We, mm. I don't know. You, that well enough yet but you know you've I mean, you're a different person with different backgrounds different strengths different values um but that so that's what you know the best leaders are people who are aware of their strengths um know how to utilize their strengths but also those who are good at recognizing strengths in others and helping them to be the best they can be so um you know i think just like there are all lots of different ways we can all be happy uh, there are lots of different ways we can lead effectively um and i think that's the challenge for each leader or manager or um, you know whatever um, to, to do it in a way that's best for him or her mm, that's such a great response because no one's actually ever spoken about it in that way in in which you are recognizing the strengths in others and highlighting them and bringing them out in their role so really like that one um, and when it what about when it comes to workplace culture so workplace culture positive leadership. I'm really passionate about all of these things because I think it can affect your mood and how you're feeling in your life. Um, if you're in a really positive workplace culture and also it can kind of affect it negatively if you're in a really toxic workplace culture. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, what makes up a good workplace culture or a culture? Um, who do you think is responsible for it and how can people start shifting culture for it to be more positive? Uh, well, look, it's a, you know, people have written books and PhDs and um, we could talk for hours on it, but to try and keep it fairly brief, uh, to me, for me, a workplace culture is really just the sum total of all the little behaviours and little interactions that go on every day. Um, so it's just all the things, it's the little things that everyone does, it's those interactions we have with our colleagues. When you add all them up, you get the workplace culture. So a positive workplace culture is one that's filled with um, those positive actions and interactions. Um, it's, a, it's a culture that allows for people uh, to be positive and to be their best, um, uh, which means when you said who's responsible, it means we're all responsible for that. Um, and this is something I do talk a lot about when, I, when I'm working with organisations, that a positive culture should never just be the responsibility of the CEO or the head of HR or people in culture or whoever. Um, yes, you often need or it can be helpful to have someone kind of you know, driving that, I suppose, and being the flag waver or whatever. But um, really, a positive culture is uh, is up to every individual within that team or organisation. And now, and I'll go I'll go back to Batia, who because that's a lot of the work, most of the work that I've done with them has been internally focused. It's mostly been about about their culture and how they can be their best. And and I'm really 
proud of and, and pleased to see that I mean this is what happens there um, although I've kind of um, you know I've driven a lot of it and introduced them to a lot of things and now they actually have a, um, a, a manager who's, who's uh, head of uh, uh, people and culture although she's only been there for a, you know, it's only relatively new um, <coughs> every single individual um, contributes every single day so uh, just to give you a really practical example I set up we have a, um, a communication system called Slack that, that we all use. Oh, it's yes. just a communication platform. And, and I set up a channel in there, a gratitude channel, um, which was just a way to share, um, <coughs> sorry, share examples of things that we're grateful for. So, you know, when someone does something nice or, and I set that up and I kickstarted it. But now, um, even though I still post to that regularly, every day or multiple times every day, people post to that, say, you know, Thank you. I'd like to thank Tim for because he, when he did this, and I'd like to thank so and so. And that's just one example. But but the point I'm trying to make is that they now drive that. They now own that, uh, as they do with all the other strategies and various um, you know innovations that we've introduced. And and I think that's important. You know, if it just comes down to one person, if it's just the CEO or the head of HR or whatever, um, it's too much for one person to do. Um, and what that's also doing is sort of sending a message to other people to say, will you just sit back and wait? We'll do it all for you. But it doesn't work like that. Everyone's got to get involved um, in, in, in an appropriate way um, because that's what, I don't think, yeah, I mean, that's what's going to really drive a positive culture, the, uh, the involvement and the engagement of every single person um, in different ways, but, but on a regular basis. Mm. I really like that um, that gratitude Slack channel. That's really cool because I was about to ask you, uh, what is your advice on how you can spark more life in the workplace, which is about, you know, bringing in more humanity, gratitude, purpose and joy. Um, and I definitely think what you've just, you know, told us about that Slack channel is a really easy way to start implementing a bit more focus on the positives and gratitude and just sparking a little bit more joy in the office. Well, it's, it's a really simple example um, that yeah. you know, anyone can do. You don't have to have Slack to do it. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, again, um, the, the guys, at, the people over here are great examples of, <coughs> of living and breathing the, the principles that we've talked about. I mean, that, you know, if we have an open plan office, for example, and if anyone comes in the door for a meeting, say, a, a guest comes in, whoever is nearest the door, I can guarantee you, will get up and greet that person and say hello. And it's not, it's not their job. Uh, it's not in their job description. Um, but that's just the culture we've built. That you know, it's a welcoming culture, a positive culture, a kind culture. Mm. Um, and they'll, you know, they'll offer that person a, a drink or a, you know, glass of water or a cup of tea. Now, you know, they might seem like really little things, but again, I would argue that's what culture is. It's the sum total of all those little things. It's the mm. sum total of those greetings and the offerings of a cup of tea and the um, congratulations and the expressions of gratitude. All those little things add up. Um, because I do. What else is culture if not all those things? That's that's mm. what it is. Mm, yeah, I completely agree with that. All those tiny things make the biggest difference to how you feel when you're at work. Um, something that's a little bit and the uh, good thing. So the good thing about understanding it like that is, it makes it accessible to everyone. Mm. You know, you don't have to have um, chief happiness officer as your title. You don't have to have um, <laughs> leadership or anything on your business card everyone and anyone can do those things and and i think that's actually that's empowering for people to think well yeah i I can do that um and if i do do it it actually makes a difference yeah for sure it can be as simple as 
in the morning, um, if you are a team manager or, or if not, if you've come in early to, to get a lot of work done and your team starts arriving, simply putting your head up and saying hello um, yeah. and giving off a positive vibe, even though you're <coughs> even that's going to make a really big difference to how that day is going to go for everybody because you're setting the tone for the day. Um, the other question uh, I wanted to ask you about was about burnout um, because it's been recognised as a medical condition. So I wanted to talk to you about this topic. For someone who's new to it or wouldn't even recognise that they are burning out, what are the key drivers that lead to, to it and what can people do to avoid burnout? Well, I'll start by saying I'm actually not a big fan of, of that as a... Uh as a name or as a diagnosis, I just think, because the reality is, um, and it's been around for a long time, um, and the reality is it's really just a, um, I guess it's a combination of certain symptoms of depression and anxiety. Um, okay. And I, I don't think we necessarily need more diagnoses and more names, um, okay. but the flip side of that is it's good that it's getting recognition. So, I mean, there's there's pros and cons. I mean, the advantage is it's, you know, it's getting attention, which is good, and it's um, maybe not getting to get ignored as much, but I'm not actually a huge fan of, you know, putting people Labeling in boxes like diagnosis. Yeah. But anyway, but the, the, the bottom line is it's it's very real. So obviously people, um, and sorry, so the slight difference is that um, between depression and anxiety in a general sense is that burnout and when those symptoms come together in burnout, it's, as, as you kind of hinted at, more typically related to specific work stressors. So so that's essentially what it is. It's, it's um, stress that results from workplace stressors or particular issues. Um, you know, it's things like feeling exhausted or tired and having difficulty concentrate and being irritable and um, those sorts of things. Uh, I can't remember the other parts of your question, sorry. Oh, my, my other part of the question was, um, how can people avoid burning out? Uh, okay, so, um, well, like anything else, um, the prevention is better than cure um, or early intervention is better than treatment later on. So. In an ideal world, we well, I guess if we had great positive cultures, um, these sorts of things wouldn't develop in a good way. And certainly in a good workplace, a healthy workplace, they're less likely. But, but nothing's perfect and no workplace is perfect. And there's all sorts of reasons why people might still uh, experience um, symptoms of burnout. So if we can't eliminate, and we probably can't eliminate it completely, what we can do is try to get in as early as possible. And like I said earlier in a previous conversation, um, uh, that can partly come down to a form of mindfulness. You know, so being aware, and that's both for the individual and the people around them. So as an individual, um, I should try and uh, ideally I'd be aware of what to look out for. So some mental health education is useful here to understand you know, what to look out for, what are the early warning signs that might be indicative of, of, you know, of the onset of, um, of burnout. Uh, this is also important for managers to be aware of, or even just other colleagues, um, and it, just to look at, look out for your mates, look out for your colleagues. And if you notice signs of, of tiredness or if someone's, you know, they're turning up late all the time or they're submitting work late or um, they're making more mistakes than usual, those sorts of things. Um, yeah. We notice those things. Um, don't be too scared to say something, but jump in and, and ask, are you okay? Um, so in, a, in an ideal world, by building positive cultures, we would minimise this. In the real world, it's going to happen. So we can, if we identify these things earlier, um, it makes it easier to treat. And then ultimately, I suppose, at whatever point, um, you know, we need to recognise that some people will need to see professionals. So um, uh, a lot of organisations have what we call EAP programs or employee assistance programs um, mm -hmm. where they can get free um, counselling. 
um, for, you know, paid for by the workplace, which is great. Some workplaces will have internal uh, staff that, that people can consult, or and at the very least, go to your GP, find a good clinical psychologist, but but do something rather than doing nothing. Um, the longer these things go on, um, the harder it tends to get. So again, getting in earlier is is almost always beneficial. Mm, that mental health training um, stood out to me as well because I don't think a lot of people get mental health training per se to be able to identify certain things. But I think those behaviours that you called out, that's important to be able to be become aware of um, and not not ignore. Well, it's more common than it used to. I mean, it, it, it never happened. Um, you know, 20 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, it never happened. Um, it is increasingly common now. There's mental health first aid training. And, you know, all, I mean, there's a lot, number of organisations that offer it. Beyond Blue, I think, offer a workplace program. So um, there's always room for improvement, but it, it's definitely better now and it's happening more often now than it ever did in the past. So, but yeah, I think there's a lot more workplaces that could benefit from. Um, uh, from some simple training along those lines. Yeah, for sure. Um, moving on to um, a question about your challenges or what you're working on um, to, you know, whether it's a skill or a soft skill. Um, the reason why I like to ask this is because um, people might be going through similar things to yourself. Um, so I'd love to know what is your current challenge or something that you're working through um, and what are you doing to improve that area? Uh, well, strangely enough, despite um, being the Chief Happiness Officer of the Happiness Institute, um, despite sometimes being called Dr. Happy, um, I've actually experienced depression almost all of my adult life. So uh, that's a constant challenge for me. Um, I go through uh, good and bad times, um, but that's a, you know, it's a constant challenge for me is to manage my depression um, to, to, I guess, keep on top of it, in a sense, um, and to continue to engage in the things that work for me that help me physically and mentally um, because uh, because if I don't, I can't do what I love to do and what I need to do. So, um, so yeah, it's constantly, it's a constant, I, I was going to say battle. I don't really like that word because I don't like the idea of fighting, but it's a constant uh, challenge. Like maybe that's a better word to, um, to maintain my mental health and my, and my physical health, which are closely related so I can keep doing what I love to do. Um, and do you think that um, what you're doing to help yourself are there, um, we've probably touched on a lot of them actually, but are they the things, things like focusing on your thoughts, um, focusing on your strengths, relationships, are those um, some of the things that you're working on um, to sort of keep you focused on improving or making sure that um, it's not having a negative impact to your life? It definitely, it's all, it's exactly all the things we've spoken about, and plus a couple of others, I suppose. So definitely all the things we've spoken about, um, yeah, mindfulness practice, um, particularly watching out for those negative thoughts, maintaining positive relationships. Um, there's a couple of other things. I mean, exercise is very important for me, um, mm -hmm. not just for my physical health, but it's just as important for my mental health. Um, and I guess the other thing, which I've kind of indirectly referred to, but which is very important, um, is helping others. Um, so by helping Batir, I'm really helping myself um, because I feel good when I'm doing good. Um, and I think that's something that doesn't get a lot of attention. I think a lot of the, or sorry, as much as it could, a lot of the um, focus for depression, for example, or on a lot of mental health is, you know, what can we do for you? Mm. Um, but, and, and that's important, you know, I definitely need to do things for me to look after my own mental health. But, uh, but I also know that, um, that even when I don't feel like it, and even when I'm 
actually even quite depressed and quite miserable. Um, if I can get up and do something for Batia, for example, mm. um, that's one of the best antidepressants by helping them and feeling like I'm contributing to what I, I mean, everyone will have different causes. Not, you know, not everyone will be passionate about youth mental health in the same way I am. But, but for me, that's my passion. That's my cause. And I know that if I feel that I've made a little bit of a difference to them and help them do what they do, again, that's like an antidepressant. So, um, yeah. So in addition to all the other things we've spoken about, I, I would go back again. I mean, physical exercise is, is very underestimated, I think. Um, but also volunteering and doing good is a way of, I mean, in giving we receive and uh, something yeah. that a lot of people could probably benefit more from, I think. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much for sharing that because I think it just <coughs> acknowledge and know that it happens to anybody. Um, and it doesn't matter if you're an expert in psychology and mental health, it can still happen to you as well. Um, so it just makes it easier for people to speak about and think about and seek help for. Um, what about what you're really proud of? Uh, well, this is part of my depression, I suppose, is that it's uh, nothing's ever good enough for me. <laughs> um, so I'm constantly, no matter what I think I've done, I'm often thinking about what I should do more of or how I should do more. But but no, there are there are a couple of things. So I'm, I'm, um, well, one of the one of the early, the biggest in my early career, completing my PhD was definitely a proud moment. That was um, um, you know, that's the biggest body of work that I've ever. I mean, it's fun, it, most people are more impressed by the fact that I've written some books and appeared on TV. But that, there's nothing in terms of the academic challenge, the intellectual challenge, compared to a PhD, which is like three and a half years of. So that was so certainly, and it was kind of something I'd, yeah. Anyway, I, I was really proud of that as a as a um, as a as an achievement early on. Um, more recently, um, I was I'll come back coming back to Batir again. Um, mm. I was awarded a, I was given an acknowledgement by them, an award that they give every year for people that uh, for non-staff members who contribute. Um, and I was uh, I was given that award at their annual ball. Um, and when I had a couple of good friends there and my wife and daughter were there. And uh, so that, that was definitely, most recently, I mean, that was only a few weeks ago, yeah, a few months ago. So that was definitely um, uh, an incredibly proud moment. Um, and then there are lots of different things. I mean, I'm very proud of what I've done for Batir. I'm proud of, um, I think, the contribution I've made to promoting positive psychology in Australia. I, I was sort of one of the first people to kind of wave the flag. Um, I know that I've helped a lot of people um, and that makes me feel proud when I force myself to remember it. Um, so yeah, there are things along the way. Uh, and yeah, I mean, look, if, if you'd told me sort of 10 or 20 years ago that I would have had eight books published and uh, yeah. appeared on a national television show and written, uh, been involved in podcasts, I would have thought that would be an, and had a financially successful business. Um, I probably wouldn't have believed you, but <laughs> um, I have done a lot of things and I am proud of a lot of them, but I guess constant, challenge for me is is spending time reflecting more on that and not just thinking oh, i should have done more i could have done more what more can i do that's a yeah. that's part of my um uh, yeah one of my faults i suppose i think we all fall, fall guilty to that feeling of what else can i do what should i be doing what else can i do so um i think it's actually so common for people to fall into that trap of focusing on what's next rather than <coughs> like what you've just done and reflecting on all the amazing things that you've actually been accomplishing, um, you know, that have created all of these moments of real pride, which is amazing. Um, you touched on your PhD and it sounded like there was a lot of pride there, three and a half years. I was curious to know um, what you focused on for your PhD. 
Well, it was actually, I touched on this a bit earlier. So the, the population we were looking at were chronic pain patients. Um, oh, okay. uh, so I was looking at the psychological aspects of pain management. But, mm-hmm. um, but I, was actually, I actually looked at um, uh, the relationship between the person with chronic pain and his or her significant other. So more often than not, their spouse. So um, it, it wasn't really about the pain so much. It was more about the role of the husband or wife um, and the extent to which how what they did impacted on the person's coping. So it was really about relationships in a sense um, and effective support. Wow, how, how interesting. Um, yeah. where it, I'm curious to know because there are actually quite a lot of people um, in recent times that I've heard of that experience chronic pain. Um, and it's only something I feel like has come to light more and more um, in the recent years. And again, it could be just because of my focus on it. Um, but, but what are some good um, books or bodies of work that people can go to to understand the link between psychology and, and the physical pain that you mentioned? Uh, no, it, it's a massive problem. I mean, I think it's, it's if not the number one, close to the number one reason people visit their GPs. I mean, it's a, wow. a very common problem. It has been for, for decades now, and it's typically poorly managed, unfortunately. But uh, mm-hmm. turns so the colleagues that I used to work with wrote a great book, um, which I'm not 100% sure if it's still in print, but if it is, it's called Manage Your Pain. Um, uh, and the first author's name was uh, Michael Nicholas. Um, yeah. So that you could that that would be great if that's. Um, I mean, I'm yeah. So, but I'm a little bit out of touch with that area, so I'm not sure what else is around. But that if that's still in print, um, that would be a great place to start because it talks, uh, as I said about the whole. Um, I guess it's a multidisciplinary approach. So it talks about some of the medical aspects, but there's also chapters by a physiotherapist about appropriate exercising. Um, obviously by a psychologist about various psychological principles and even about managing medication, et cetera. So there's, um, you know, it sort of comes at all the different, um, the different elements that are very important for someone to sort of get on top of. Yeah. Okay, great. I'll um, include that as well in case it could help someone out. Um, the last question um, for today is who are your heroes and why? And they can be everyday people or they can be famous people. Um, now, I saw that when you sent it through and I, um, I thought about it. it it's funny. Um, I don't mean to avoid the question, but it's actually, I, I'm not actually a big fan of heroes. I don't really, because I, I suppose because I'm, I'm so aware of my own imperfections um, and I've seen and worked with so many successful and a number of famous people um, and become aware of their imperfections that the idea of sort of hero worshipping or idol worshipping is, um, I'm not a big fan of that. That, that being said, I've been lucky enough to have some fantastic people in my life who have significantly helped me, including, including the person I just mentioned earlier. So Michael Nicholas, who was the first author of that book, was my most significant professional mentor. He, uh, he was the director of the clinical master's program when I did it. He was my PhD supervisor and my employer for, for basically for a decade or so. He, um, and as well as being a fantastic psychologist and academic, he was just a fantastic person. Um, so I, um, I wouldn't necessarily call him a hero, but I'm definitely very grateful for the very positive impact he had on my life. Not just, profe- I mean, very much professionally, but also personally, I think it was when I, I mean, I was, you know, just coming out of university. So I was in early adulthood and, uh, and I got married in the middle of that, I suppose, somewhere. So I think I also, you know, learned how to be a man. Um, he, you know, he, he was just a really good human, a good yeah. person. And I learned a lot about managing other people and, 
So definitely him. Um, at the risk of sounding too cliche, my wife, um, yeah. uh, whose patience and tolerance, putting up with me for all these years, <laughs> but who who has a, I mean, particularly through her, um, just unconditional love for me and my kids and and the world generally, I suppose. So um, again, I, I don't know if I necessarily call her a hero, but she's definitely, um, you know, very very positive. Incredible. Uh, I can't even describe. Incredible human being. So they're probably the two, you know, that's sort of partly work and partly personal. Uh, but I mean, you know, I'm very grateful to my parents who, again, without being perfect, um, did a pretty good job, I think, of uh, the best they could anyway, of, of raising us, and the, you know, my siblings as well. I'm increasingly becoming proud of my children who are kind of um, almost becoming, or I guess becoming adults in a way. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, and, and then the, I guess the other, you know, more recently is the, a bunch of the people at Batir. So um, Seb, who was the founder, uh, and then Sam, who was the uh, sort of first CEO after Seb, and even Nick, who's now the CEO. Um, and really just the, the whole team there, they're, they're just a, um, an amazing group of inspirational young people who give me hope for a better world. I mean, they, they're constantly thanking me for what I give to them. And I said, I got this award a few weeks ago, but, but I thank them for sort of keeping me young. <laughs> Um, keeping me hopeful um, and giving me almost a second family uh, in the you know over the last couple of years. So um, yeah, That's so they're in different ways. All of those people. Yeah, and probably there's others as well. It's hard to hard to think of them. Yeah, no, no, no. A lot of times when I ask this question, um, it does end up being people that you know are in your everyday life. It's not always going to be you know someone that <coughs> lies. And I think you're right. There's there is no such thing as this perfect human um, or a hero the way that, you know, it's commonly seen. So everyone has imperfections. And um, I think, yeah, the group of people that you've picked, um, you know, between family, friends, you know, the charity, what they're doing to change the world, like it all sounds amazing. Um, just before we wrap as well, did you want to talk about the audio book that you're um, looking to launch in the new year? Be keen for listeners to know about it and look into it once it's live. Yeah, that's cool because that's I guess that's been the latest project which I just um, uh, well I was in the studio uh, last week recording um, and it's it's pretty cool actually it's pretty exciting one because it's the first um, audio book I've done uh, I've done a podcast before and they're similar in a way but this is um, so it's kind of, it was kind of something new and a bit different which is cool um, it's also the um, it's kind of the the culmination of all of my last work in a sense it's like a summary of everything we've talked about and in um wow. in a couple of hours so it, it, it covers a lot of what we've spoken about but goes into a bit more depth um but the other thing that i'm really kind of excited about is it's going to be free <laughs> which is oh. really cool so it's part of a new project called audible originals so um, i think all you got to do is sign up to audible um it'll come out in january 2020 um but yeah it'll be free which <coughs> sorry which i which i'm kind of excited about so hopefully it'll be really accessible to everyone and um if uh if you <coughs> So if you listen to audiobooks or um, if you haven't, you might want to start. Um, yeah, it's called Habits for Happiness. And it's really just, a, um, as I said, a, um, all of my work and all of what we talked about coming together in, um, in hopefully a nice succinct, well, 10 chapters that sum up, um, you know, sort of key habits that we should all try and build into our lives for, for more happiness. 
How exciting that is. I'm, I'm so keen to get my hands on that. Um, that's, it, it sounds amazing. I can't believe something like that is free. I'm going to tell, I'm literally going to tell everyone about this book, this audio book. Um, yeah, it's cool actually. Yeah, it's exciting. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's been such a pleasure to be able to speak to you and learn from you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I learned so much from speaking with Tim. I absolutely loved doing this recording with him. I'm going to include the two books that we mentioned, which one was Manage Your Pain by Michael Nicholas and the other one was his book that I was referring to, which was The Happiness Handbook. So I'll include those two links in the show notes. And I have to say, I really liked his response to my hero's question because it's an important reminder for us to know that even the most successful people are going through their own challenges and, you know, we're all going through something. So just because you see something that looks glossy and shiny from the outside, reality is that we're all just humans. I hope you really enjoyed this podcast. If you did, please rate, review, uh, share it with someone. And thank you again for listening. Speak soon. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of Behind the Bee Box. My journey with Brainy Box has inspired me to share what I've learned from others with you in the hope it makes a positive difference to your life, business, or workplace. Your feedback and love is what keeps me going. So please follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn at Brainy Box or connect with me on LinkedIn at Sherry Amami. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Have a wonderful week and I'll speak to you soon.